Welcome to the Mortis and Tenon Magazine Podcast, where we're celebrating historic furniture making. This is episode number 13. I am Mike. And I'm Joshua. And uh, we have a few different things going on right now around yeah. the shop. Spring has sprung here in Maine. We're starting to see little green things coming up out of the ground. Yeah. And biggest news ever. Ever. We have a bathroom <laughs> at our shop. We built an outhouse. We do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty pretty fun. It it's, feels like we a, used all a real kinds deal of place. all kinds of old um, vintage boards. With we picked through for the ones with the craziest paint and bits of wallpaper and everything <laughs> stuck to them. So yeah. you step in the outhouse and it's a very um, eclectic feeling, kaleidoscopic. It's, it it inspires like it. creativity in there. Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's a it's a not like a pit toilet though. Those, no, those are gross. Uh, <laughs> it's like a um, like a humanure or like a composting compost toilet. Right. So it's a bucket and it's wood gonna save the world. And, yeah, it's gonna save the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I read this book or I'm reading this book by a guy named Joseph Jenkins, uh, and Jenkins has the humanure handbook, mm. and uh, it's just I gotta tell you that is some fascinating reading. <laughs> It's a great book. Uh, so that's kind of what we're doing with that. Um, some people have asked about, oh, you're digging a pit. How are you going to do that? So Yeah, this is a, good this way to is do a totally different system. So yeah. uh, another thing we're doing around here, uh, as we're uh, issue seven is under development. And so we are taking this time right now between, um, you know, our issue six packing party wrapped up and now both Joshua and I are working on our articles, mm-hmm. and we have coming up uh, next month in the month of June our summer workshop here. Oh, is that next month? That is seriously next oh, month. Oh my goodness! Uh, we up. have we have six students coming in from all different places uh, to come and work with us for a week. We'll be doing um, it, it's kind of a, a work exchange type of program. So mm-hmm. they'll be coming in and helping us with a project here at the shop on the shop, and then. Um, We'll also be working with them in in the shop downstairs, uh, building projects. Each student actually has a different project. Because <laughs> that's a good idea. Because that's a good idea. And um, it's not too complicated doing that. So seriously, running the gamut from, um, you know, building a table out of lumber to um, green woodworking starting from a log to a bookcase a bookcase and uh, some molding yeah so, oh, some it's gonna be all uh, frames it'll be good i think it's good for each student to be exposed to that you know wide spectrum of different activities right so. and we feel like uh it will be valuable because it's not that we'll all be kind of in our separate corners doing our separate things right. everybody's going to be sharing what they're doing um so we see it as as a really good opportunity to get a kind of diverse uh series of <laughs> processes all together and everybody can think through them and we can all scratch our heads together and go, okay, how do you do that one? Time now? will fly, I can tell you. Yeah. It's going to go yeah. by fast. It's going to be good. Uh, but so part of what we're doing in preparation is we built shaving horses. We <clears throat> each made one, um, two different styles, and mm-hmm. we actually each made a chair. Uh, we just yep. finished up our chairs um, just to kind of walk through that green woodworking process, just kind of getting our minds around how are we going to help this particular student and her project. Mm-hmm. Um what is this, the design we're going to work with? What are we going to, you know, lead her through? So it's been good. It's been fun to make some chairs yeah. and just kind of get in gear for that. So, yeah. yeah. A lot of different things going on here. Yeah. And uh, one one other thing that uh, is in the works, which we haven't 
announce yet, and hopefully we will soon, is this um, potentially big, uh, uh, huge, ridiculous project that may be going on here this fall. But I can't really say any more than uh, stay tuned because it is big and huge and amazing. Yeah, we can't say anything because it involves a lot of other people uh, from around the world and mm-hmm. a big deal thing. So There's until, a lot of logistics to jump Once it's 100% confirmed and we can start nailing down logistics, then we'll be uh, documenting it fully when it happens and sharing about it. Uh, so stay tuned. Uh, yeah. It should be, be pretty exciting. Yeah. Um, so today what we want to talk about is, uh, you and your family were recently in Massachusetts. Yeah. <coughs> right. Uh, you were down at Finewood Working Live. As, Which was a blast. Yeah. We went a couple years ago, right? Yep. You, and we were just there to, uh, have the magazine out for sale and kind of the marketplace and to meet people. And it was so much fun. Yeah. Amazing people. <coughs> really awesome yeah. people. A great group of people, but uh, this time you were there as a presenter, mm-hmm. um, and you presented, uh, your your talk was called uh, Cutting Edge Technology, Pre-Industrial Woodworking for the 21st Century, or, or in? in. I, I don't think one? it ever got decided, but I mean, the idea was just that it was for the 21st century, that is, okay. uh, the benefits we can get from that, okay. from that way of working. Yeah, so uh, you you talked about... You kind of gave the backstory of M and T, your background, um, and you talked a little bit about uh, just you know discovering uh, when working on old furniture, you discovered tool marks, yeah, and also sure. how you discovered Jonathan Fisher and how those two things came together to really reorient the way you looked at uh, woodworking with hand tools. Right. Yeah. I mean, uh, anyone who's heard what we've said in the podcast before. You know, you've heard of us talk about tool marks and stuff, and um, I was just sort of laying that that uh, that story out for uh, for the audience, just to explain. You know, looking at all this, all these tool marks and all the construction details, and kind of making sense of what was this what was this pre-industrial process like? What is it? What did it look like to actually be in the shop working? Mm. And so, by <clears throat> reverse engineering, by looking at the tool marks, I could, you know, I was making sense of that, and I still continue to try to make sense of how that works. Um, so that's kind of how I was starting to talk right. about this topic. <laughs> and one of the central parts of your talk, uh, towards the beginning, a, a way that you illustrated that was uh, you showed uh, some clips from this 1920s uh, Swedish woodworking video. It's this this uh, awesome hand-cranked black and white of these uh, workers in the shop. They're making chairs, right? Yeah. Among right. other things. So here, guys, uh, they're flattening a, a leg, it looks like, for a chair. You can see their fancy uh, workbench, uh, French polished top. <laughs> and, so this is a tradition where they have two guys planing at this, uh, this type of plane. But you see that they have just a simple planing stop there, but there's no tail vise or anything. It's locked in because they want to flip it all the time. They're trying to work fast. They set it down, plane, flip it, check it. I found that to be very important. So, okay, so now we're going to chop mortises. Look at how this guy's chopping. Look at that. Look how he's just flicking it out as fast as he can. The other thing is, sitting, this, this is how I chop mortises now. This is an absolute game changer. So now he's carving it, so he's got his, the work in his chest pressed up against his workbench. And you can think, oh, well, that's not a good way to do it, right? And the other, so, oh, 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 slipping. Okay. <laughs> 
Well, you know what? This guy's making a living doing this. He does this six days a week, 11 hours a day. And this is how he chooses to do this. And so this guy knows what he's doing. You can see how fast they're working. This is incredible. Um, so, okay, driving tenons. Uh, you dip the tenons in hide glue, and then you use the back of your hatchet to drive the, the stretchers in. Right? And then you use the hatchet to drive the legs onto the front of the, the stretchers. Oh my goodness, you know, I'm thinking, what in the world's going on here? Why are they doing it that way? So, why are they doing it that way? What is so compelling uh, to us all about that video? Uh, for me, besides the fact that it's a really cool hand crank film that you can see, you know, a shop 100 years ago and the way they were working, um, what it was really highlighting was all the different techniques. Um, what it was doing for me is I saw all these rough tool marks on old furniture, but I really couldn't picture it. I couldn't picture what right. it looked like to work like that. And this 1920s uh, chair shop showed me exactly what it looked like um, because for a lot of... Basically, what I was trying to do is I would get the uh, old tools, these vintage tools, and try to use them in a way that would make the tool marks. But th there just wasn't the same life to it. Mm -hmm. There wasn't the same um, the same spirit in it. I right. just kind of used the tool and gently, calmly planed the board, and it yep. kind of resembled period tool marks. But there was a life that was missing. And what I saw in that video was that that spirit of work, that workmanlike uh, approach that yep. was... It almost looks, I mean, it looks hasty in a lot of cases. It mm. was, you know, in the, in the clip, we were hearing some of the laughter about some of the, the ways of approaching. It's almost cavalier. It right, kind of right, looks right. like, wow, how can <laughs> they be doing this? But I think it's, it really helps because when you look at not just 1920s Swedish chairs, but, you know, American period of furniture or, you know, from any culture, really, when you see those hasty tool marks, you realize, oh, that's exactly how this stuff was made. Right. And so it really gave me a window into the way in which these tools ought to be worked, the way hand tool woodworking has always been done. Yeah. And so like when we were assembling our chairs uh, downstairs and knocking them together with mallets, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of what is in me wants to just be gently tapping things together. But honestly, that's, that's a really modern way of approaching yeah. chair making. They, they just weld them together with the back of an axe. Well, yeah, exactly. It's like the back of the axe. And then, you know, once you smash the legs onto the front with the backs of, back of an yeah. axe, then you smooth then you clean plane it up. the yeah. front of the legs. Yeah. Of course you would do it that way. Why yeah. would you get like a, a buffer block or like clamps to pull it together tight? Forget that. Just smash it on and plane it clean. I mean, that, that's the idea of this video. And um, that just that resonates with all the tool marks I've seen. It says, yeah, you know, I saw that. I'm like, yes, that's it. That's how this stuff was made. Mm. So, and it's only really the last pass or two that you need to have a nice, clean surface. So right. everything before that can be down and dirty mm -hmm. and just quick. And quick and efficient. Yeah. <coughs> so you bring up, uh, in your talk, you bring up uh, Swetsu Yanagi, who wrote um, The Unknown Craftsman, um, the book, actually, that was our, our book recommendation in Issue 6. Yeah. He's also mentioned in, um, in David Lane's article in Issue 6. Uh, so he... He's been such a a wonderful uh, person to get in, kind of into the philosophy of and the mind mindset of. Um, but he talks about the uh, the importance of tool choices for craftsmen. There's a man named Soetsu Yanagi that has looked at uh, Japanese work 
um, and another uh, work, and he's what for him what he said is, man is most free when his tools are proportionate to his needs. Man is most free when his tools are proportionate to his needs. And so for me, what that makes me ask then is, okay, so what are my needs? What am I trying to do with woodworking? What is my goal? Why am I a woodworker? And so I actually want to ask, so uh, how many of you in this room uh, make a living doing furniture or at least do it part-time or just selling furniture? Uh, 20, 15, 20? Okay. Thank you. Uh, I think I, I want more furniture makers in this world. I think that's an awesome thing um, when we can have people uh, making a living doing that. And so I want more of that. Um, so that, so the goal of furniture making, you can enjoy that work, but also obviously you have to think about the bottom line. You have to be able to uh, be viable in the market. Um, so for those of you, uh, everybody but those 20, uh, presumably you're doing this because you love it, right? What are some of the reasons? Why, why are you woodworkers? What do you love about woodworking? What draws you in? You can just call it out. Work with your hands. No computers. No computers. <laughs> Self-reliance, focus. Creativity beefs up the body. Makes a physical product. Makes a physical product. Okay, like like the computer comment. Yeah. The texture of the wood. The texture of the wood. Wow. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. See the results of the effort. Okay, all right, that's good, that's good. Um, okay, so you're passionate, passionate woodworkers. Um, and so I think for me, that is where, where I'm really tapping into. I don't make a living selling my furniture line or doing custom commissions. You know, I'm doing mortise and tenon for a living. And so for me, uh, woodworking is, is not an economic necessity. So, yeah, most woodworkers that we talk to are indeed hobbyists, right? It's yeah, right. not they're not doing it to make sure their kids are well-fed. Right, exactly. Or and fed at all. Yeah, so, you know, I had, of the, whatever it was, 300 people in the room, 20 of them right. were at least part-time selling mm -hmm. furniture. <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's a very small percentage. It is. And as I said, you know, I think furniture making is an incredible way to make a living. I think that's an awesome thing. I, I hope that we can get more furniture makers uh, mm. in the world. Um, however, I think we need to be honest that when we are talking, we as, you know, if we're writing an article, we're teaching a lecture or teaching a class, we have to be honest with ourselves that we can't put industrial priorities on our students saying, right, what's, you got to keep in mind the bottom line, you know, right. we have to, uh, you have to show them the economic, uh, the economic drive that you need to work efficiently. Uh, not really, actually. Mm. <laughs> Most people don't need to work efficiently. They, right. You know, I, I remember, um, uh, Patrick Edwards quoted, I think it was Toshio Adate, who said, you know, something to the effect of, why would I want to do something in one hour when I could do it all day? Right. <laughs> and I, to I totally agree with that. I mean, I think if we're woodworkers because we love woodworking, why would you want to speed it up to get it over with? Right. Right. It does make sense if your bottom line uh, is dictating that you finish the job so you can feed your family. Mm -hmm. That totally makes sense. That's a legitimate thing. But if it's not, yeah. We aren't bound to that. Right. And I think that's the thing for me that really unlocked um, the the joy and the beauty of hand tools is that I wasn't, I don't have to use a table saw. So thank goodness I'm not going <laughs> to, you know. So um, I think that's really the heart of what I was trying to get at uh, with that. Hmm. Um, you, you talked about that a bit, uh, 
you know, a little bit later in your talk, you contrasted the benefits of uh, the benefits of handwork with the perception of this drudgery. Yeah, that, sure. You know, everybody thinks back then, oh, it was this dark and dirty time, and and everybody kind of despaired of life, right? <laughs> um, but you know, some of that certainly existed. Some of That's that right. drudgery was a real thing. There was hard work day in and day out, and that was. Um, that was life. That was typical. Pre-industrial work obviously had elements of drudgery, of course. Uh, when people had machines, they were grateful for, for uh, to be not uh, bound economically to having to provide and uh, being careful about not getting injured. Um, but just because the pre-industrial artisans were bound by uh, economic necessity and that that element of drudgery they could not avoid. Just because that's true doesn't mean that has no relevance for us or we can't learn anything from it or we can't take the good parts of what they had and take it in the 21st century for our good. So if we have labor-saving things and we have, you know, be- we have the benefits, for me my goal is to get the benefits from all time periods, to learn from the wisdom of all, all ages and to see the technology of all ages and say how can this benefit me and my goals in my life? So what are the benefits? You know, you say that uh, you do pre-industrial woodworking for post-industrial reasons. What do you mean by that? Well, uh, I th- think there are a lot of reasons. Uh, but for me, what I wanted to talk about in, this, in this, this lecture, this presentation, I focused on two things primarily. Um, and the first of which is the... Um, the research side of it, the history mm. side of it. You know, so many of us wonder, what was it like back then? What was it like to um, to live in, say, the 18th century and mm. to, to make furniture in the frontier or in the city or what was life like? And, you know, there are so many great resources that we can depend upon. Uh, there are a lot of history books. A lot of us are history buffs, and we read a lot of books. Um, but, you know, I think that the, the shop-based approach, the – kind of standing in their shoes, as it were. It has a lot of benefit uh, in mm. that kind of pursuit. The books can only take us so far. And also, sometimes uh, scholarship can be a little bit circular, you know, that be- they're citing people that are citing people that are coming to conclusions. So it can be a little bit circular. But all of us know that when you try this stuff yourself, instantly, so many of the, the ideas go right out the window and a ton of new questions come so there's great value in studying history, but there are also limits of scholarship. Yeah. Right? Right. Sometimes we just need to go try something out in the shop. Uh, so what kind of questions come up uh, when you work these questions out in the shop? What what further investigations are you led to? Uh, like specific th- yeah. cases? Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, there's the overall general approach, and then we, which we've talked about already. We've talked about... You know, the, the way that the Swedish chair shop, ca- these guys carried themselves and that kind of mm-hmm. thing uh, helps. But also layout, um, when you do have rough-hewn surfaces on the inside, you have to lay it out in a very specific way. You don't have a lot of options. Right. Um, and so one example of something that I found to be very helpful is when I'm teaching a class, a woodworking class, I make sure, even if we start with boards that were already machined uh, in one particular case, I'm thinking we had these boards that were all machine planed to thickness. Um, and that's actually hard for me to work with, mm. uh, as funny as it sounds, because 
so I, I taught my students. So on the inside, take a four plane, very heavy and, you know, clean it up or, you know, basically tear it up, make it right. Tear it up, you know, textured. And I said, because what I found in my shop is not only, um, is it just practical to get the roughs on marks off, but you know, if you can picture either, you know, an 18th century low light shop or even a brightly lit shop today, I mean, how many times have you had little pencil marks? You're trying to mm. mark the outside face, the reference face, the square edge, all that right. baloney. Forget all that. You don't need any of that. Yeah. Because when you have a rough inside, yeah, you don't have to obvious. ask. It you becomes, don't... yeah, uh, only if you're doing it with your eyes closed with thick gloves on would you accidentally put something on backwards. Or... Yeah. So what I found, <laughs> I mean, I, I mark the top edge uh, that's going to be covered by a tabletop, say. I'll just scratch the top edge, mm. cross grain. So, okay, there, that's top. Yep. Done. <laughs> um, but the inside is always rough. And I remember one particular situation. I had a student um, that I emphasized and emphasized, make it rough, leave it rough. And he smoothed the whole thing and squared up everything. <laughs> and he was getting mixed up with his layout. And he asked me about it and handed me the piece. And I couldn't find, I couldn't figure out what the front was and what the inside was. And I asked him, I said, well, what's the inside? I handed it to him and he couldn't figure it out either. <laughs> he was like, I, I guess I don't know. So, so to me, I feel like stuff like that really shines that, you know what? I don't want to be standing there looking and trying to find my pencil mark. I just planed off. Oh shoot. What is the right side here? Check for square. Forget all that. It's just leave it rough on the inside and then you're done. You can just pick up the piece, not even look at it. And you know what your what the face is. Um, so it's stuff like that, but also just the order of operations, um, I mentioned the the card table that I reproduced, uh, but that was made by Jonathan Fisher, and I was about to approach it in one way, and as I saw the layout lines mm. and I started reverse engineering, I realized, oh no, wait, he had to do the top first and then do this, and wow, okay, so why would you do it that way? Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a lot of layout lines and things like that, um, seeing the way the paint, you know, bleeds over to this other surface. Um, it's stuff that you never really think to ask. But once you're doing it and you get you approach that step of the project, you go, oh, huh, well, how am I going to transfer this to that other side? Hmm. And you go back to the piece and sure enough, you find some little scratch mark or some right. mark and you go, oh, okay. Showing that's yeah. how it was done. So that to me is just really fascinating. Uh, it's, a, it's, a good, it's a compelling reason, I think, to try to you know build a piece faithfully, not just in the style of, but look very closely at all the layout lines and try to understand why are the inside corners of table legs chamfered often, mm. sometimes at least? What is that little chamfer doing? It's right. hidden. Mm-hmm. But once you start mm. laying that stuff out, you pretty quickly realize, oh, you want to mark the inside corner, of course. Yeah. You know, it's stuff like that that just really comes uh, to the, the fore. And again, that's why we love uh, period furniture that is it is not finished on the inside. It is yeah. not finished on the under, underside because that's where the information is. It's, yeah. It's, it's like animal tracks, you know, you exactly. can read what's going on. Yeah. It's like tracking. <clears throat> so, I mean, it's, yeah, that's the thing I would be, if we had, uh, a situation, you know, if historically people always smooth planed and squared every surface regardless, mm. we really don't have anything to There's talk no about. There's no information there. We just say, well, there it is. Yeah. These are the tools they had apparently according to records, but it sure doesn't look like it. Yeah. You know, but they really took time. And they spent a whole lot of time doing it, too. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's just not as interesting to me, honestly. Yeah. Um, I spent most of this morning on a computer. I don't know if you n- knew that. <laughs> yeah. uh, 
uh, you know, yeah. right up till lunchtime and maybe even past a little bit. Lots of computers. Yesterday was, was very similar. I had a small stack of things I had to get through before I could go down and finish up on my chair downstairs, and I was just itching to do it. Yeah, right. <clears throat> because uh, neither of us are big fans of sitting in front of a screen, right? Like, yeah. if we wanted a desk job, we'd go get one. Yeah. Right, um, but but we 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 really don't. Um, but it's funny because we live in a, a day and age where we have uh, devised so many ways, so many uh, devices to save us time and to offer us convenience. Right, mm-hmm. we can put all this great convenience in our pockets or. Um, you know, in our cars, we have these great displays that tell us everything that's going on, right, in the whole world. Yeah. Um, but at at what cost? Um, and uh, you brought that up a bit in your talk as well. How many of us here, you know, spend time, some time, during our work on a computer? All <laughs> <laughs> right. At least sometime. I, I think that was absolutely everybody in this room. Um, nope. All right. All right. One. Great. You are blessed. Um, so computers are great, of course. Uh, to have a PowerPoint, to have a video, to have this conference, and uh, being able to purchase tickets online, well, that's great. But the average American spends 10 hours and 37 minutes a day in front of a screen. And so we get worn out, we get tired, and we say, I gotta get out of here, I gotta do something else. I wanna do some woodworking, I wanna get in the shop. I can't wait till the weekend or, or the night or whatever, or retirement or whatever. And so we're trying to, uh, in this, this digital era, not only is our, our work uh, radically affected by screens, but also our leisure is radically affected by screens. Yeah, we've seen so many people in the tech industry react or respond to uh, what I'd call digital tyranny, <laughs> okay? Yeah. In my unfiltered moments, I'd say that. I wouldn't usually say it. You the technopoly. Know. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, right, right, right. We've seen so many people, uh, we've heard from readers, you know, in the tech industry who respond uh, to the fact that they're so immersed in technology in different ways. And one of the things uh, that you brought up at your talk and that we like to to bring up a lot is the whole uh, spoon carving movement. Yeah. Right? Right. The fact that so many people in the city want to step back from uh, the craziness of of a a technologically saturated life and just make a spoon from a chunk of wood. And that's remarkable. I mean, like I said in the talk, you know, who saw that coming? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> who right. who said, "Oh yeah, in the 21st century, uh, you know, with the rise of computers and all that kind of stuff, there's going to be this whole pushback movement where mm-hmm. people are in their New York City apartments, uh, you know, hewing uh, chunks of firewood yeah. to make wooden spoons because that's so important for 21st century yeah. life." You know or I mean? following arborists around Central Park, hoping to get a bit of a tree branch that they can bring home, you know, ride home on the back of their bicycle and bring it upstairs and cut it up. Yeah, totally. And they're, and they're joining, um, you know, we were talking with someone recently that she joined, a, a, was it a New York City spoon carving club? Mm. And they have this secret stash of wood from arborists. And, and she was like, where'd you get that? I want to get that wood, you know. And, um, you know, I think it's, it's funny because you could think, okay, well, in the woodworking world, you would know of some people like that. Mm. But it's growing. It's huge. Um, and not only the market for these spoons... 
these spoons are going anywhere from uh, you know fifteen dollars all the way up to you know hundreds a, of a couple hundred dollars for a for wooden spoon, spoon yep. depending on the level of ornamentation <laughs> and you know whatever. Um, so that's just mind blowing that there's a, a viable strong market for these these spoons or wooden bowls and cups and all that kind of stuff. But even beyond that, the tool makers, mm. the the Sloyd tool makers, the um, I think of uh, Reed Schwartz, um, this really really exceptional uh, knife maker that you know I have a knife from Reed and it's just it's amazing because when he he works in small batches and when he puts these knives up for sale, he'll send out an email and he'll say, okay, Saturday at noon we're going to open this sale and there are X number, uh, and within a minute or two yep. they're all gone. Yeah, we're talking about like. knives, $200 knives, all gone within a minute or two. And so like the, the demand for the tools and um, the making of these, uh, these wooden objects far exceeds uh, the supply. Right. Uh, People are crazy about this stuff. Yeah. And I think that really, a lot of them are people in the tech industry. Yeah. And they are, they are wanting to, they, they're wanting something real. Yeah. They deal in, in zeros and ones all day long. You know, they deal with with streamlining UIs so that they can get something from three keystrokes down to one keystroke yeah. because that's the drive, streamlining and efficiency. And they're, you know, having nothing tangible to show for it at the end of the day. They want to go home and make something they can eat their ice cream with, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I read a book called uh, The Revenge of Analog. Um, <laughs> and the author's name escapes me at the time, but... Uh, it's a it's a fascinating book because he's talking about this idea of this current trend to push back. I mean, you know, when you look at these hand shaken coffee drinks, right, right, right. <laughs> I'm right, thinking right. like handcrafted. How milkshake. else did you shake yeah. a coffee drink? That's a weird. Or you could put it in a machine, I guess. Hand cut paint shaker. Or something. I mean, it's just like you know this this generation uh, is striving. This authenticity generation is striving for that. They want that. Their coffee shops are full of. Um, rough sawn boards. Right. That's, these are the, their coffee shop tables. Um, and I think all of that is pointing at this desire to have something tangible and real and has mm. evidence that a human being was involved in the making of this. Right. It's not like my iPhone mm-hmm. or my MacBook or something that um, that everything is perfect and um, we, at, we demand absolute um, regularity and, and pre- precision with, mm. um, that we want something. There's something that points at humanity in tool marks and i think actually david pye talks about that quite a bit yeah he says that the um the works of man reflect nature with these uh this diversity of surface these tool marks that um that when we look at those things we see humanity yeah. and you know in say the 17th century you had just about enough nature. <laughs> right. you, you wanted regulation. You wanted bright colors. You wanted gloss. You wanted all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff because it it helped offset from the um, you know the the natural wooden world that you were surrounded with. Mm-hmm. Well, you fast forward to the twenty first century, we're going and the wood other is direction. rare, and yeah. everything's plastic and perfect and yeah. mass produced, and we just want something for our souls to say, you know, like, yeah. How about something made by humans? Yeah. And that's the pottery craze and that's all that kind of stuff. Um, and so uh, I think that's really – that spoon carving thing is is picking up on that. You know, there's actually – I was fascinated to see – fascinated. Hey. I was just going to say actually uh, there's a fascination with facets. Yeah. Oh. Ooh. <laughs> that's a funny uh, wow. play. But uh, spoon carvers, they talk about facets, playing mm-hmm. with facets today. 
and they just love all those tool marks. And yeah. I think that's pointing at that desire for real tangible analog things yeah. in their lives. So so you would say that spoon carving is is bigger than the spoon. Way it's bigger than the spoon. Way more than it's just... It's not really actually about the spoon at all. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Although they're, they're neat, but that, it's not really about spoon that. Spoon is a vehicle. And then, again, you can eat ice cream with it. So <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. valuable. So then, you know, as you do, you start to talk philosophy at a woodworking conference. Right. Because yeah. that's, you know, what's done. That's why we... Yeah. Uh, that's the place for it. <laughs> so you brought up uh, Albert Borgman's book, uh, Technology and the Character of Contemporary Life, <clears throat> which has been really valuable you know, to you, to us, in helping to um, really kind of distill our relationship with technology. You know, we all have a relationship to technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, What is it exactly? Um, And so you unpacked Borgman's argument on this. What Borgman talks about is he's describing the character of contemporary life. He's describing what he calls the device paradigm. It's this whole idea of devices provide commodities that we get and then we can continue on with our lives. And if something breaks, you know, like my iPhone, my iPhone breaks, I don't know how to fix it. I, there's no way I have, I have any knowledge of how to fix that because the whole way it uh, frees me from burden is by hiding the mechanism, right? If we knew how it all worked, we'd be fiddling with it. So the way that uh, the burden is taken away from us is by hiding the mechanism. Well, what happens? What happens when we look at these iPhones and they don't work? We're instantly disengaged. We're saying, oh, stupid things, right? What's wrong with this? And we've got to ship it out. And we have no uh, in- engagement with this thing anymore, this communication. So a-, a phone is for communication and other things. But if you're trying to communicate with a loved one, this is a device that facilitates communication. But when it doesn't work anymore, you're disconnected from that communication. So what do we do? Uh, this seems like a pretty grim, irreversible scenario, doesn't it? <laughs> what What can we do here in the 21st century, which is moving faster every day than we could have even imagined, you know, even a decade ago? Mm-hmm. Are Are we caught in this? Are we uh, captured, uh, ensnared in this technology, uh, these rapids forever? Uh, Borgman doesn't think so, not necessarily... Um, I mean, you know, this is a podcast right now that you're listening yeah. to presumably on your phone or, or some other device like that, um, distributed through our website, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about it. We'll share it on Instagram so we can tell all our right. social media followers uh, and Facebook followers that it's on there. So, you know, I think Borgman, uh, he's definitely not saying, um, you know, burn all these devices, right. uh, move to like a, you know, so-called primitive lifestyle, get away from That's not his case at all. But what he's saying is it's important... Uh, for us to have balance in our lives. Mm. Uh, we all know that it's not good for us to spend this much time in front of screens. Right. And so Borgman is saying what we need to have in our lives is this this regular, committed, focal practice, mm. is what he says. And this focal fo- practice. Focal practice. So what he's saying is focal uh, is this the central, core, human things, uh, things that are grounded in our humanity and mm. our humanness. Um, and not in technology. Um, so the commodities and all that kind of stuff I was talking about um, are, are a different system. That's that device paradigm. That's this technological focus. But he's saying you've got to back away from that. You want to be able to uh, move more toward uh, what he calls engagement. You want to engage with the world. And so he talks about, um, talks about running, 
Mm. He talks about making food with friends from scratch and these things that are, um, you know, I was honestly taken aback when I was reading a, a relatively dense book written by a philosopher for fellow philosophers. Hmm. And then he comes to his conclusion. He says, so wash lettuce leaves with your friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. And bake bread by with your friends. And he's referring to um, Heidegger's work. And Heidegger was talking about, you know, the earthen vessel and pouring wine out of the earthen vessel because the sun grew the grapes that made the wine and you have the mm. clay that made the vessel and how it connects us and you you bow your heads and pray before uh, the meal and you have conversation all these really core human things these these philosophers are saying you know go figure we're humans and we yeah. need to uh, uh, attach into that and to latch on to that and say you know this is who we are this is what we're uh, designed to be and um, so I think Borgman's really helpful to lay out, not throw it all away, but to have a disciplined, regular uh, engagement with the world. He mm-hmm. actually defines skill as a refined engagement with the world. Mm. And I really like the way he's put that because there's intentionality to that and there's, um, there's purpose. The woodworker and he's saying, Hello, that's exactly why I'm drawn into this, is, um, you know, this isn't about having a, a device or a commodity that helps me get the end product. This is about just learning to use simple tools to develop these skills to, to make things with my hands. I think, um, so what, this is what uh, Borgman says, this engagement. We need engagement. When you see a master at work, uh, whether it's a culinary master or a woodworking master, when you see someone use a simple tool like a knife or a carving gouge with such fluidity and skill, I mean, for all of us, that just inspires awe. You know, we think, wow, I can't believe someone can do that. And so for me, that's the obsession is I'm not saying I'm there at all. I'm saying that's what I want to work like. I want to strive for that. So the challenge, the physical challenge and the challenge of learning the, the careful uh, dexterity and hand skills, that's the drive for me. That's why pre-industrial woodworking uh, is relevant for me. And so for me, I think it's, it's all about uh, restoring the joy in manual labor. Um, I think a lot of us think of manual labor, physical work as drudgery. But this kind of passionate pursuit, I think, is a key to unlock the, the joy that can be had in this. So on that note, uh, unlocking joy <laughs> in work. Yeah. You uh, literally on that that note. On that note, you got a room full of woodworkers to sing a song. Yep, we <laughs> sang, <laughs> we sang a song. Yeah. Okay. So uh, tell us about that. After your philosophical discussion, yep. you sang a song. Yep. Okay. <clears throat> well, so I remember I was talking with uh, my wife, and uh, <clears throat> I was saying, "Hey, honey, I got this idea. So you know the fine woodworking thing coming up in a few months." I'm going to get everybody to sing a song with me at the end. <laughs> she was like, what? So not only does she know I can't sing, I have a terrible mm. voice, but also she's, she's thinking, how are you going to get all these woodworkers to sing with you? What? Are you, what? And so uh, we started working on it. And basically it was inspired by, you know, I put the question to the audience, you know, so, okay, if we're thinking about pre-industrial work and drudgery, um, and we think, okay, well, they were just, you know, slaving away in the fields, literally in some cases. Yeah, right. Um, but, you know, how, do you, how did people historically maintain joy in manual labor? 
Hmm. How was that the case? Um, or were they always miserable? And the answer, and people were firing this out, is they sang. Yeah. While they were working, they were singing out these work songs. So there'd be a leader and a call and response kind of thing. And it just kept everybody's spirits up. And so, um, you know, it's it seemed like if we're going to look at uh, sweaty physical labor, things like hiking and climbing, you know, mountains and um, running, stuff like that that's physical, and we're going to look, we're going to try to uh, – to give ourselves a new perspective on it, to not buy into the 21st century myth that physical work is a problem, something to be avoided, that mm. we want leisure or not work. Um, if we're going to get out of that system and find joy, uh, if we look back at history and we see how it was done, we see it was through singing and song, not independently, not the professional mm-hmm. who has a record contract and they perform. Everybody sits there quietly listening. This is a communal thing yeah. where people with a voice as bad as mine can sing with other people. Um, and it's a beautiful, awesome thing. Actually, at our packing party, we had a few instances of singing mm-hmm. around the campfire. Um, and our good friend Wes Falkenberry sang an awesome song for us. Yes. There was a, you know, that was, was amazing. A, a circle of probably over 40 people there. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, hey, I wanted to share something. We were going around show and tell, sharing tools and furniture. And Wes had a song for us. Yeah. And he belted out this song. And yeah. it, was just, it was a beautiful thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I got, I got all these woodworkers to sing with me this this the song um, I called The Trodden Way. So I wrote the lyrics based on 19th century work songs. Um, but the melody I borrowed from David Dod- Dodson in his song, The Farthest Field. Um, so, yeah, it was, I set it up like it's like a call and response thing. And mm-hmm. uh, it was it was a blast. So how did people respond <laughs> uh, to the song? I well, mean, they, to the song and in, uh, in, to the talk in particular, did you have any uh, follow-ups, any people approach you afterwards with, you know, like back you into a corner or anything? <laughs> um, for the most part, no. I mean, I had a few people saying, oh, yeah, I don't know about this. This seems a little bit silly or irrelevant. But uh, I had, you know, all weekend I had people coming up to me saying that they really appreciated the the talk because it resonated with them. You know, mm. I mean, I asked the question about the how many of you, you know, work with computers and every single person except one person in the room <laughs> said, I use computers all day long at my work. Right. Um, and so that really resonated with them. Um, I did have... Uh, you know, like one guy in particular came up to me and he said, you know, um, 
honestly, I have to be honest that when I heard the topic of this uh, this morning lecture was pre-industrial woodworking, I was not interested at all. Huh. I didn't want to come because I don't care about pre-industrial woodworking. But his eyes were like glowing. He was all excited. <laughs> and he said, but you've converted me. <laughs> That's what he said. But, you know, what he's, what he's getting at is he's saying it seems like pre-industrial woodworking should be, you know, something that should be reserved for um, historic interpretation or right. reenactments or something, you know, what I would call puffy-sleeved anachronism, you know. Nice. Um, and but what I was I was making the case for uh, pre-industrial woodworking in the for the 21st century that this is something that's good for us to take the these benefits and i think he saw that and you know he was appreciating that so um the response was strong um and i i was very grateful to tom mckenna and and barry and um you know everybody at fine that helped coordinate this uh that i could be able to share that i'm so thankful so thank you uh you guys um but it was a really fun uh, experience to kind of get reactions. I can definitely say that when I started talking about joy and work and they, this was maintained through song, I guess I started seeing people like shifting in their seats going, and looking uh, around like, wait a minute, what's he going to do? Now? What's he going to do? And I said, I think we should sing a work song. You know, you can just feel they're like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> but they were, I mean, you watch the video and everybody's smiling they're you know they're singing along and oh man it was it was a blast it was a really great way uh to spend a weekend for sure yeah and uh as i said i've been working on the computer and we've gotten uh quite a few emails from people saying oh yeah that was wonderful so <laughs> uh so how are your kids handling stardom oh yeah uh, they were up on the stage they sang with you and then asher specifically was they're planing aboard as you talked. Yeah, so yeah, we had the the work song. So my wife and three boys came up, um, and they were kind of working and hanging out, singing with us. Um, and then afterwards, Asher was up there, and he was still planing. Uh, and so we had a Q and A after. So that twenty minutes or whatever, uh, he stole the show. Everybody was watching him, <laughs> not even paying like, attention. Oh wow, look at his form. He can really, you know, he's four. And they're saying, wow, for a four-year-old, he's really got form down on, you know, handling a plane. Uh, so I don't know that anyone was paying attention to me after that point because they were just watching <laughs> this little kid. But, uh, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. It was cool to be able to bring the kids uh, to it because I think they were the only children at the conference. Wow. Uh, so <laughs> it, was, it was fun. It was good. Yeah, that's, that's a, a great event, and hopefully we can uh... – we can get back there. Yeah, I can't wait to be a part of that event again. <clears throat> so thank you all for listening to the Mortis and Tenon podcast. If you haven't already, you can subscribe at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have any com- comments, questions, uh, you can leave them below. So thanks a lot. We'll see you next time. Yep, thank you. <laughs>